Good morning. Our reading today is from Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, if you would have a seat and join me in prayer as we uh, look to God's word this morning and his redemptive purposes. God and Father, we stand still in front of the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge that are yours, and yours abundantly. Uh, your ways are unsearchable. Your judgments uh, and ways are inscrutable. And so we look to you, and we want to honor you and give you glory forever. Father, we also uh, want desperately uh, not to uh, be listless and liveless, uh, but, Lord, to uh, live in spiritual worship. Uh, not to be conformed uh, to the world, but, Lord, uh, to ask you that we might be transformed by the renewal of our mind and that by testing we might actually be able to discern what is your will, good and acceptable and perfect. Father God, we pray that you would do that for us as only you can. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, today is going to be a little different. Uh, I have, for the last 14 years, I believe without exception, maybe one time else, uh, uh, been given just a passage to preach. And uh, as we came up against the end of, uh, of John's letters and uh, then starting the a new sermon series in Philippians with Jeff uh, next week, uh, I was kind of given a week. Uh, what do we talk about? What do we go into? What do we explore together? What is it that I would want to deliver? And I'll be honest with you, I don't like that. I uh, really much prefer God's Word just kind of guiding us where He will rather than uh, what I would. But after the last year and a half of uh, preaching many weeks, uh, this is the last sermon that I'll be giving uh, through uh, probably uh, December is the next time that I'm scheduled. And so uh, I thought, man, what is it that I would want to talk to? What is it that I feel like the Lord has been working into me and, uh, and it comes really out of this passage uh, that uh, we might be giving glory to God and that we also might be being transformed by the renewal of our minds and that we might be able to discern what is the will of God, good, acceptable, uh, pleasing in his sight. How do you live a life like that? How do you live a life of glory but then also of, uh, of great discernment? Wouldn't you like to live a life like that? 
What I will tell you, since we're not going to be really exploring this passage out of Romans this morning, we'll be uh, taking a, a real look at the entire redemptive story, beginning to end, is that this is uh, not as much preaching. What I want to do this morning is uh, probably more likened uh, to teaching, to deliver to you something that I, I feel like God has just been working on me in, and to kind of prove the point that this is not going to be as much preaching, I want to start with a quote, maybe an unlikely one, not from scripture, but one from Socrates. Socrates said that the unexamined life is not worth living. That, that a, a person that just kind of lives flippantly and kind of moves and is tossed by winds and waves and moved along uh, just uh, by no perceivable force, someone that has not examined their life uh, really ought not, uh, really, their life is not worth living. Now, here, here's what I will tell you. I'm going to immediately disagree with that quote. There's a kernel, I think, of truth in it. But, uh, of course, we believe as Christians that all life is worthy, and we want to see lives lived. But what I am is shocked at those who don't examine their lives, people that don't live thoughtfully. That might seem high-minded or condescending or ridiculous or weird, but uh, you know these people. You know people that you've seen, and they really have had no charted course through their lives. They have no discernible kind of bedrock on which they stand. Uh, their emotions pull them one way. Their friends pull them the next way. This world pulls them under. Uh, they uh, experience some sort of celebration, and they're lifted up, but there's no real way to discern what it is that they are after in this life. But Examined or not, everyone has a worldview. Everyone has a philosophy of life or a system of interpreting this world. Whether they've really examined it the way that Socrates is taught, or they are informed by the affections or desires of our hearts. And so that's not bad. This is not merely, the building of a worldview is not merely an intellectual exercise. My perspective is, is that most people, though, because they have not been very thoughtful about it, end up with worldviews that are inconsistent and malformed, even unknown or unexpressed to themselves, as if they've kind of walked through an orchard or a farm and taken whatever fruit that they might and put it in their basket. They, they, they go along and they say, I think I'll have some apples and rutabagas. And then uh, somewhere along the way, they, uh, you, you can discern that they're not really like cooking anything discernible. It's not going to go together. For many, you could look inside of their basket and you would find dirt and rocks and be like, why are you carrying around dirt and rocks with your vegetables and fruit? For others, they, they uh, may grind up meat and stick it in there and it's rotten. It hasn't uh, really come to anything except for putridness. For still others, they may have uh, picked up a snake and put it in their basket unwittingly, unknowingly, that it's very dangerous. But at the end of the day, uh, so many times our baskets are filled with just randomness, things that don't go together, things that might even be dangerous for us. Yeah, chances are that whether you know it or not, your worldview informs most of the vital and perceivingly unvital decisions that you make in your life. Our worldview, the way that we actually go about uh, seeing and perceiving this life and building uh, systems of value, uh, those things actually inform the decisions from uh, who you marry all the way to the way that you drive your car. Whether you know it or not, your worldview informs everything about your life. Where did you go to college? I imagine that something about the way that you viewed the world kind of uh, brought you there. 
your dad was an Aggie, or you just thought that uh, this might be the school that you might be interested in, or your friends were going a certain place and you valued them, and your worldview says you value your friends, so we'll go to this college. Uh, Whatever you choose as your vocation is kind of illuminated by the things that you value or gifts or skills that uh, make up your worldview. When and who to marry, when and how to have kids, how to educate your children, how to steward your time and money, the friends that you keep and make, the people that you push away, the trials and how you uh, move through trials. The way that you celebrate all of these things are really navigated by the way that you view this world, the things that you value, your philosophy of life. Even in those moments between where you're not very conscious of it, the way that you interact with the decisions that you make are always informed by the worldview you have. So what do you think about divorce? Well, that's going to be really illuminated by the way that you view the world. How do you, what is government's role in your life and in our society? That's going to be uh, brought about by the way that you think about the world. How do you truly help the needy? What is your relationship to alcohol? Is abortion ever justified? Whom do you vote for? Is it ever okay to be tribal, to seek out a tribe of people and to be and belong to and fight for them? Maybe even the most uh, essential question is why do we exist? Why does anything exist at all? Your answer to all of these questions, to the extent that you have one or don't have one, is illuminated by your worldview. So I want to ask the question, and this is going to be what we're going to be about this morning, is how should you go about building a life philosophy or a system of interpreting the world around you? How can you build a worldview? Maybe even, nextly, are you even up to the task or are you distracted from all of the glittering things of life and you have never put yourself about the task of actually building a worldview? I will tell you this, I feel like building a worldview has uh, been my lifelong pursuit at moments where I didn't know it and uh, times that I'm literally conscious of it and sitting down and thinking about it. It's been something that I've loved doing, that I am not finished with. It will take me the rest of my life to determine what a true, unadulterated worldview is, what my worldview is. 2016, though, it became apparent uh, to me through a series of non-successes in my life, trials, but then also just for all of us, uh, culturally, I think we were all asking some pretty big questions in 2016. As a pastor, I had people coming to me and asking me for my opinion on politics. Now, I'm no politician. You shouldn't even want to know what I think about politics, but they did. And I don't think it was wrong for people to call and just ask me, Chris, I I don't know what to do. I I value uh, the uh, life of the unborn, uh, but I find these uh, candidates, not just presidential ones, detestable. I don't know how to vote. Voting seems sacred to me, and I don't know how to do it. And it occurred to me that I really didn't have a bedrock by which, or a system by which, to answer those kinds of questions for myself, much less other people. And so in 2016, I I literally set about the process of building a worldview. This is something that's very personal to me, and so I want to invite you along that journey. 
if you've never thought about it in these terms, I want to invite you into this lifelong pursuit. In many ways, today is not a sermon that I want to preach to you. It's not even necessarily a worldview that I demand that you take or agree with, but it's showing you the journey that I've been on and inviting you into a discussion here at City Church about how we might build a worldview together. Or it's maybe pushing you to a point to be consistent with a worldview that God desires for you. But one thing that you will find is, is that there is no way to be totally, utterly, completely, 100%, 1,000% certain of your worldview. And I'll tell you why. Because no matter how far you go down this road, at some point you will have to have faith in something. You will have to uh, discern what you're going to put your faith in. Is it going to be into uh, science or is it going to be into ancient texts? Is it going to be into a certain kind of education? Is it going to be into your emotions and affections? What is it going to be in? Are you going to, what are you going to follow? At some point, it arrives in faith. And for most of us, when we ask this question, are we up to the task? Most of us say, no, probably not. Not on my own anyway. You know, my name isn't Aristotle. I don't have, like, the kind of mind that should go about trying to see the world as it is and completely discern and distill down into uh, perfect and basic parts what a worldview is. I don't think that that's what we're demanded of. In fact, when I mention faith, I want to invite you into the fact that humans have been doing this for a very long time. We've been writing novels about truth. We've been uh, learning and discerning great and ancient truths. We've been encountering God in truth. And so what I want to invite you into today is the building of a worldview and the giving up into the life experience that you have, but then also something completely more certain than that. So I want to state it this way. Building a biblical worldview is a Christian's cause. Building a biblical worldview is a Christian's cause. If you've ever wondered how to uh, have meaning and purpose in your life, in fact, we're going to be talking a lot about meaning as we kind of launch into the book of Philippians. We're going to be talking about what a life worthy of the gospel looks like. How do you live a life that is meaningful, that is weighty, that is worthy? Building a biblical worldview is actually a Christian's cause. And you'll notice a couple of things about that statement. First is that it's active. You're actually building something. You're, you're doing something. You're not let, just letting it happen to you. You're actually active in it. But then secondly, you're noticing that it is biblical. It's based on Scripture. Building a biblical worldview is actually purposeful. It is the Christian's cause. Building a worldview is a lifelong privilege, and it gives your life purpose and meaning and consistency, and it avoids paralysis. Those things in our lives that might hold us back can be crushed, destroyed, moved past by building a biblical, sturdy, durable worldview. But it also, it doesn't just do that for us, it also builds a collective culture, and it builds a shared sense of purpose, and it builds civilizations. So it goes out from the individual into the families, into our communities, and then builds civilizations. Our worldview, our collective worldviews can actually build something great and grand. It can actually promote human flourishing. Some worldviews actually are inherently better at building in societies where human flourishing is possible than others. And for those of us who are very sensitive to these things, you might go, no, 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 that's not true. All cultures are equally valid. They're equally good at bringing about human flourishing. That is totally and completely untrue. You need to read two pages of history books to know that that is not true. 
Today, if you are a woman, there are societies in which, and I think about uh, different areas of the world where cultures are built around worldviews that actually want to minimize, to cover up, to stow away, and to keep from flourishing the women that are lovely in their midst. Not, not all cultures are equal. So we actually want to go about this process for a specific purpose. We want to see life. We want to see flourishing actually happen. And I believe, as you would imagine, that the Christian worldview actually means the most. It gives the most opportunity for human flourishing. And of course, I would say that. And what I want you to do this morning, if you start off in a place of disagreement with me on that point, give me grace to prove this point this morning. Give me grace to actually be the pastor that I am and the person that uh, hopefully stands firm on the word of God to actually prove and make that point. But the first thing that I want to do is actually ask the first two cues. Okay, so we're going to follow actually a form here. We're going to talk about two cues. We're going to talk about God's grace. We're going to talk about the law and the prophets, the types and the shadows, the king and the kingdom, the abundant life and the consummation of that kingdom. Now, some of those things we're going to dive deep on. Some of them we're going to remain somewhat, uh, uh, somewhat surface level. But if you want to write some of this down, you might find that it's worthy of exploration on your own. So the first is the two cues. Every worldview should be founded on a bedrock of some kind. Every worldview should answer life's most essential kind of irreducible questions. And what I want to do is have spent the last like five years kind of exploring what those are and just give them to you this morning. You might disagree. You might find other better irreducible questions. But I think that the first two questions that every worldview must ask and answer is first, who is God? And second, who is man? Who is God? Does he exist? Has he revealed himself? What is his nature? What is he like? Is he righteous? Is he unrighteous? Is he uh, existent or non-existent? Has he revealed himself or are we agnostic about him? The second is, who is man? Was man created? What's he like? What's he for? What's his purpose? What's his chief end? The answer to these two questions are upstream. I will uh, give to you from every worldview. Every question that has ever been asked is downstream, I believe, from these two questions. How can I say that? I actually want to demonstrate it to you real quickly. If God is non-existent and humans are basically good, you are a secular humanist. And you should live like a secular humanist. If God is God as revealed by Joseph Smith and, uh, and you are a person that, uh, and man is essentially a spiritual being that is one of God's children uh, that lives out in the Mormon church, you are a Mormon and you should live like a Mormon. If you believe that God is uh, uh, Allah as revealed by the prophet Muhammad, and you are, man is, essentially divided into two groups of the faithful and the infidel, and the world is to be taken sometimes by uh, taxing and by uh, war and other times by proselytization, guess what you are? You're a Muslim. You're, you're, you're an Islamist. And there are lots of different facets to that. Every question that you would ask underneath that is going to be answered in light of those two questions. So are we all on the same page? You need to ask and answer the question for yourself at bedrock, the essential, irreducible questions of who is God and who is man. And that's precisely where the Bible starts. I want for you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be uh, just skipping across the top of these texts, but I want to try to answer this for you. 
Genesis 1.1, the very first words of the Bible say, In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. The Bible claims to reveal the one true God. So I want to ask you this morning, right from the get-go, is your God the eternal Alpha, the one who uh, pre-existed everything, the unmoved mover, the one who is revealed here in Scripture, in the beginning God? But he didn't just say that he exists. He's not just revealing that he exists through Scripture. It says that he does things. He created. In the beginning, God created. What did he create? The heavens and the earth, the light and the darkness, the waters and uh, the land. And then he goes about the process of not just creating, but filling those. And he doesn't just fill those. He actually calls things by their name. He actually names them. He has authority over them. This God, the God of the Bible, is powerful. And I want to ask this morning, does your worldview start unwaveringly with the true God who, as he has revealed himself in scripture, he has relentlessly self-defined himself. Okay? So the first answer to this, my first answer to who is God is God is the God of the Bible. Are there a long list of things that belong underneath there? Of course, God reveals himself as being righteous, and I believe that. Why? Because he has told me so. Is that, is that circular in some ways? Of course it is. I'm having faith in what God says. I've explored other worldviews, and I see that this is a sturdy foundation. It, it provides such place for life and life abundantly that I can stand on this. God is the God of the Bible. Secondly, it says this in Genesis uh, 1.26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion. So God created man. How did he create him? In his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. They are man. They are woman. They are created by God. They are in his own image. Man then is endowed with the glorious image of God. Both men and women are given the glorious image of of God. So for us, we actually see this resulting in human flourishing. Why? Are men more valuable than women? They are not. Why? Because they were created with the infinite glory and image of God actually impressed on both of them. They are formed in his image. It's beautiful. This worldview is strong and it actually gives us a way of interpreting even the modern winds of what does it mean to be masculine? What does it mean to be feminine? You can see that all of those questions are downstream from the primary question of who is God and who has he made? He has made man. What is the nature of man? His image, his creation. Man then is endowed with this glorious image and God actually puts them to work. He gives them authority. He says, let them have dominion. And then he says, God bless them. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it. He puts Adam in the garden and he says, work it, keep it. God commanded the man, you shall surely eat of every tree, but there is one that you not, shall not eat from, and it is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of that tree, the tree, you will surely die. So, so who is God? Who is man? We get a pretty clear view of who those two are. Then we see that there's a problem that arises. Chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw the tree was good for fruit, food, and that it was a, a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired. She's building a worldview. 
she took and ate and gave some to her husband and he ate. So God has revealed himself in the Bible and man is both gloriously endowed with the image of God, but he is also fatally flawed, cut off in sin. They disobeyed. They didn't work the way that God had intended. A biblical worldview starts in this place that God, verse 24, chapter 3, drove out the man, that there was separation from him. So what we see right from the get-go is is that God is the God of the Bible and that man is, get this, I want you to own this. This can answer so many of the questions that you have in this life. Man is gloriously endowed with the image of God but fatally flawed by sin. How do you understand uh, this lovely spouse that you are married to when they fail you? They're gloriously endowed with the image of God and fatally flawed by sin. Do you have expectations of your spouse? Are they perfect? Why aren't they perfect? Because they're fatally flawed by sin. There is separation from God. This really serves as the strong foundation for our faith. But it gives us a problem, and it's the separation that we have from God. At one time, this perfect biblical God, as he reveals himself there, and this man were to be together and to live uh, together. But now that is broken. And so what, what, what happens immediately? Death quickly enters into the divine drama. But God's goodness gives an eternal promise of grace. You may not know this, but our our church actually has a confession of faith. It's something that we use as a guide for our theology, and it actually says this. This may be surprising to you. You would need to know this if you're building a strong worldview. The distance between God and the creature is so great that though we do owe obedience to our Creator, we could never have attained the reward of life, but by the voluntary condescension of God, on God's part. What is that saying to us? It's saying that this chasm, this void, this separation that's been created really could only ever be meted up, could ever be gone over by the condescension of God. And how does he do it? It continues on. It says that he is pleased, God is pleased to express this grace by way of covenant. This condescending grace is actually given to us in a specific form, a specific way. It's a word that I want you to know and to explore and to uh, have ears for in the future, and it's by the way of covenant. Man, having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace wherein he freely offers life and salvation to sinners by Jesus Christ requiring of them faith in him that they might be saved. Right from the get-go, we get a covenant of grace. How is this separation to be, uh, to be done away with? How are we to bridge this separation? By the grace of God. How is it to be done? By the faith that he provides. We are saved by grace through faith, and it's a covenant of grace that he makes with us. So right from the get-go, we know and understand that this covenant is made, this covenant is revealed in the gospel, first to Adam in the promise of salvation by seed of the woman. It is further revealed in Genesis 9 when God's unconditional promise to, uh, to Noah says that by his grace he will never again destroy the earth by flood and he seals it with a rainbow. In Genesis chapter 12, God's unconditional promise of grace is to bless all people by Abraham and it is sealed with circumcision. There is 
this revelation of the covenant of God's grace. In 2 Samuel, made to, uh, made to David, we see that God's unconditional promise of grace will establish a king and a forever kingdom. And it is unsealed at that time because we are to anticipate that there will be a king. There will be a kingdom that will seal his promise forever. God, we know and understand, is not just the God of the Bible, but he reveals himself through covenant. He is a promise maker. He is a covenant keeper. And it is man's duty to receive and to believe these promises in faith. Who's doing the work? God is doing the work by grace. What are we to do? We're to receive and believe the promises that he makes. A biblical worldview, you see, sees God's covenant to save by grace through faith from the beginning. Have you ever been confused at why we have this whole section of the Bible that is just pesky and it's big and it's long? It's hard to understand. It's the Old Testament. It's because God was revealing his covenant of grace throughout time. We actually see that God is making and keeping these promises by way of actually uh, putting them into his forever covenant of grace with us. A biblical worldview sees God's covenant to save by grace through faith from the beginning, but then he further reveals it through law and prophets and types and shadows. I'm going to go very quickly through this, but I want for you to know that these have a place in God's redemptive plan. God, along the way, as he tells this beautiful redemptive story, as he meets out this covenant of grace, God gave the law and prophets to guide his people along the redemptive path. The law is a schoolmaster of righteousness. The purpose of the law was not to save, but to teach God's people. What is clean and unclean? You can answer it by going to the law. What, need, what is needed to cover over sin? You can go to the law and see what is required. What is God's exacting standard for righteousness? You can go to the law and see it there. But not just the law, the prophets. The prophets were given to bring God's word to his people. God's word to kings or his people in exile was to call them to repentance and at other times pronounce judgment. Sometimes these prophets were to live as object lessons. Other times they were to interpret signs. And so I want to ask you, do you have a worldview that includes knowing what the law and the prophets were all about? You need to. Let me tell you the truth. I didn't. I'm still exploring and getting to know these things. I'm still trying to understand what it is that the law was trying to communicate by way of righteousness. What we really need to understand through the law and prophets is that a biblical worldview looks to the law and prophets for the ultimate message that is that we are to love God and to love our neighbors. This is the essential distillation of all of the law of prophets. But if you don't know what the law and don't know what the prophets say, how can you understand the gravitas, the weightiness, the worthiness of love of God and love of neighbor? How can you understand that that's what it all boils down to? But it's not just the law and prophets. It's also types and shadows. God's redemptive story is filled with whispers and connections and allusions and illustrations. God is a very deliberate and very careful author. How do we know this? Because Adam is called a father. Priests dress in a very specific way. The sacrificial system unfolded in front of us to tell us something. Do you know anything about it? Is it a part of your worldview? The law and prophets, the types and shadows. God is unfolding his story, and it's a biblical worldview that pays very close attention to the Old Testament 
end to the new. And I wonder if you've ever looked at it, if you've ever paid attention to it, if you've ever seen it as necessary to know and to own the entirety of God's word, to build a worldview. I guarantee you that if you know and understand the law and the prophets, you'll know and understand how to raise children. I guarantee you that if you own the types and shadows, you'll have a, uh, a weightiness to the marriage that you are in. You'll know something about what it is to uh, have a bridegroom, to be male and female, to be a wife. These things are answered there. I want to encourage you to go and look for them. But all of these things build up to the climax of all history. It's the center of the biblical worldview. It's the gospel of king and kingdom. There, through all of these things, through the covenant of grace, through the law and prophets, through the types and shadows, we arrive at Luke chapter 1, verse 30, when the angel appears to Mary and says to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be the son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Can you understand the significance of that without knowing the Davidic covenant? I, I, I'm telling you, you can't get what's happening here without knowing it. The Lord God will give the, to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob. How long? Forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So we get this king that has uh, been prophesied through the law and prophets. We get the types and shadows of Jesus. And here in Luke chapter 1, we actually see that God is fulfilling his plan, is making sure on his promises to actually making good on the covenant of grace that he has given us, and it's in Jesus. Mark chapter 1 verse 12 says that Jesus came proclaiming the gospel. What is the gospel? If I asked you today, hey, what is the gospel? You would say, well, Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, and he died, and then he rose from the grave, and then he's coming again. It's pretty good. That's the gospel. Here in uh, the book of Mark, it says that Jesus came proclaiming the gospel, and what does he say? He says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. If I walked in here today and I said, I'm here to declare the gospel, and I just said, the kingdom of God is at hand, would you have thought that I had lost my mind a little bit, or I'd lost my way, or had not given you the full expression of the gospel? Your worldview needs to be founded on. Know that there is a king, and his kingdom is here. It's inaugurated. It is sure. Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing for every disease and every affliction caused all of those who heard this, that the kingdom of God had come to bring out their sick. The, the people that were there heard the kingdom is here and they brought the sick. How did they know to do that? How would you know how to do that? It's because we have a king and he's in a kingdom, a specific kind of kingdom. A biblical worldview sees Jesus as king, seated on an eternal throne over a kingdom without sin. And so I want to ask you, do you know that Christ the king rules over everything? And are you living in his kingdom? Are you living in his own? This maybe is the most essential point for this morning. How can you build a worldview that is centered on you? 
How can you build a worldview that's centered on power without knowing the one who sits on the throne of power? How can you build a worldview, the very many people are building a worldview today that is about justice and injustice, that, that is very, very much about a God of justice, but how can you know that without knowing that he has the authority of a king and that his kingdom is actually being revealed and it is a place without injustice? How can you know that? How can you believe that? How can you have a worldview that is durable and goes the distance with you? So what does it look like in this kingdom? Is it just any old way? Is it a meager or impoverished way? Is it the way that you determine is best? No, it is an abundant life. In John chapter 10, Jesus says this of himself, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Jesus came to save. Where there was a chasm, Jesus came to be the door across that, to be the bridge across that. I came that they may have life and have it. How? Meagerly? No, abundantly. So Jesus comes to save, but he also saves you into something. He saves you into an abundant life. For so many of us, we think that uh, a gospel life is one that is impoverished, that is, uh, that is wearisome, that is uh, worried, that is uh, filled with anxiety, or that has little by way of possessions. But here Jesus says that he actually wants to save you into an abundant life. In fact, we don't just see that. We see that the acts of the apostles are abundant. They're abundant in a different way, but their abundant life includes gospel preaching. It includes uh, casting out demons. It includes church planting. It includes taking dominion. These uh, same apostles began writing epistles, many of them, teaching on sacred things, directions for worship, how to be married, what to do with our children, how to be good workers, the right kind of life to live an abundant life, but many of these are neglected. I wonder if you're willing to go into God's word to see what the abundant life looks like and to say it alongside of scripture. For so many of us, we'll go in and we'll take passages on injustice and we're like, I like that. And then when it calls homosexuality a sin, we cut it out. We won't go there. We won't emphasize it when it has demands on the way that you spend your money. We need to know that this actually has a claim on us, that there is a worldview here that leads to a flourishing life. Do you believe it? So many of us actively actually uh, carve out pieces of Scripture and say, well, that's not an abundant life, or that's not an abundant life for my friend. God really doesn't desire me to uh, suffer in this marriage or to, uh, to stay home with my kids. or to like." There's lots of things that you can extrapolate in a beautiful, abundant worldview. But I wonder, are you willing to go into God's Word and just simply to build and found your worldview on his worldview, to have the eyes of God to see this world as he created it, to take and to receive the things that he says lead to human flourishing. Many of us pretend like we have more wisdom than our creator, 
The best thing we can do is see these teachings form our worldview for an abundant life and to build the church. We must build a culture that lives the abundant life, and we must do that together. We must live out a life and see things the way that God sees them, to live up to his calling, to boldly build a worldview together, submitting our lives to one another and trusting God's word to show us how to do it. A biblical worldview lives an abundant life in Jesus by obeying his commands and by being sensitive to the spirit and what he is calling us to do. But ultimately, ultimately, our worldview has to have an end state. We do not primarily build a worldview that we might be able to view this world. We build a worldview that we might see the new world. What I want to do is spend uh, the last few moments here in Revelation chapter 21. You can join me if you like. I'm going to read it. We do not build a worldview for this world only. We build it for the one that is to come. For those who are in Christ Jesus, we will see these things. Then I saw, John uh, says that he sees these things. Then I saw a new heaven, a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So we see that a worldview doesn't just look at this world, it looks to the next. We see that there is a consummation of all things. Here we get a glimpse of where all of this is going. A worldview must have an end state in mind. And here we are given it, we're giving a glimpse into it a new heavens, a new earth. Why? Because the first ones had passed away. So should you put hope into this world? I want to get practical here. What does your worldview do for you? What does this have anything to do with? What do you build into this world when there is a new world coming? This world is not eternal. It will be remade. It will be reformed. It will be regenerated. We see also that the dwelling place of God is with man. God has reconciled us to himself. He has made good on his covenant. He tells us that he will make sure on his promises. But not only that, it says that he will wipe away every tear. God will actually deliver us from tragedy and from pain. And he'll do it himself. It tells us that he will be seated on a throne, that he is making all things new. Jesus actually uses his authority to renew everything. A biblical worldview has an end state. It has a denouement. It has an eternal life with God in mind by grace through faith. So here's what I want to do. 
That may not be your worldview. I'm just telling you what I've explored. I've seen that this redemptive story gives me everything that I need in order to build something that is durable, that is stable, that is long-lasting. This is a skeleton of my worldview. It's the meta-narrative, not just of my life, but of life eternal. It is God's redemptive story, and I want to ask you, what is yours? Do you know what it is? Would you be able to tell somebody if they asked you how you view this world? Does it work together, or is it inconsistent with itself, like a, uh, a bag full of produce that doesn't have anything to do with each other? Does it have contours? You see, here's the truth. Many of us sail the seas of life going wherever the wind might blow. And as romantic as that sounds, that is terrifying. If you were to get in a boat and you were to shove off into the sea of life and just go wherever that wind might take you, it is dangerous. This is why so many have made a shipwreck of their lives and faith. This is why so many of us feel adrift. We feel lost at sea. We feel sick. We're calling out, save our ship. This is why civilizations fall. They forget their common worldview and they turn tribally against one another. This is why moral systems aren't given as an inheritance to the next generation. This is why families fall apart. This is why marriages are in wreck. This is why children are a mess. This is why elders are not honored. This is why women are not revered. This is why people with different colored skin than you are put apart cast away, questioned. This is why every travail of life happens is that people's worldviews steep and they don't align to God's one sure story of redemption. So I want to call you this morning to build a biblical worldview. Why? Because it's your purpose. It's your cause. Building a biblical worldview is a worthy endeavor and it leaves a lifelong legacy behind you. It actually matters. It actually builds something. So, so for those of you who are sensitive to this, I just want to call you to it. I want to call you to build a biblical worldview. I want you to pay attention to the things that are in this world because they really do matter. And God does really actually communicate through the relationships that we have. But at the end of the day, I want you to test everything with the fire of Scripture and to build something that is firm and forever by way of His Word. That's what we mean to do here at City Church. Well, our, our culture talks a lot about diversity, and that's good. We need to be a, a diverse and rich culture here at City Church. I want to see a lot more of that, but I also want to see unity. I want for us to be renewed in our minds together. I want for us to know what is the will of God, the way that Romans talks about. I want for us to give God the glory together. How are we going to do that? What is my vision moving forward for our church? It's to build a durable biblical worldview together and to build a culture on top of that that leads to a life of flourishing, not individually, but together. I want to pray for that for us. Father, you are a world maker. You tell us right from the get-go that you exist, that you are pre-existent. In the beginning, you existed and you meant to create something. You meant to tell a story. Why? Because you are the author of life. We ask that your worldview, your story would be our story here at City Church. 
We thank you not only for your creation, we thank you that you saw us in the midst of our sin and meant to be reconciled to us. You did not leave us alone, but you made a covenant of grace that we might be saved by faith, and then you gave the faith as well. Father, you wrote a story that includes the law and the prophets, that includes types and shadows, but all of it leads up to a forever king on a forever throne over a forever kingdom, and so we thank you for that. We thank you that you have sent to Jesus Christ and that by faith in him we can live forever with you. So Father, as we sing, as we take communion, as we give tithes and offerings, as we fellowship with one another, we ask that you would allow for us to worship in these ways as an overflow of a right worldview, a right view of who you are. God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your redemptive purposes, your redemptive story. We ask that every person, man, woman, and child, Lord, that you would be leading along a path towards a biblical worldview, Lord, that they would feel great meaning, great cause, and great unity with you and unity with one another because of it. Father God, we thank you for all of these things. In Jesus Christ's holy name, amen.